let me invite you to reopen your Bibles or your mobile devices, and we're going to be in Proverbs again. I think I told you last week, uh, most Bibles, if you open them up in the middle, you'll get somewhere close to Psalms or Proverbs, uh, depending on what's in your Bible, and study notes at the end and other types of information. So we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 5 and chapter 6. And um, just to remind you, we're starting a sermon series. We began it last week, Proverbs, Don't Leave Home Without It. Remember the old credit card ad, Don't Leave Home Without It. You need the teachings and the wisdom of Proverbs in your life. So we looked at this idea last week of wisdom and our part that we play, the part that God plays in giving us wisdom for our life. And I told you last week that in ancient Israel, uh, there was a lot of wisdom teachers, a lot of wise sages. There were some schools that probably young Jewish boys went to. Uh, and they were taught these wisdom sayings. And it may well be that the book of Proverbs represents the textbook for what was being taught to these young men in these schools of wisdom. And wisdom, as we, as we noted last week, whenever in Proverbs you read the word wisdom or understanding or insight, or knowledge, or discernment. It's all talking about the same stuff. It's all talking about wisdom. And wisdom can be very practical in orientation. How do you practically, uh, creatively solve a problem? Uh, it, sometimes it refers to skills that we develop in our life. But many times when the writer of Proverbs talks about wisdom, uh, that writer is talking about that wisdom that comes from God, is a gift from him. Uh, several books of wisdom in the Old Testament, in addition to Proverbs, you've got the book of Ecclesiastes, and you also have Job. And then in addition, there are some wisdom psalms uh, that we find. So there's a lot of wisdom scattered in our uh, Old Testament. So this morning, we want to look at this idea of what does the book of Proverbs have, have to tell us about marriage? We're going to focus on that today. Now, now I just want to say something uh, to you before we begin this morning, because I'm aware that here today, there are a lot of people who are not married. So you're thinking, well, what does this say to me? And I just want to acknowledge that there are some people who are single because it's their choice. And they're very happy not being married. And I want you to know that, that we honor. If that's where you are, we honor that. There are some people who are listening today who are single, and you're not old enough to get married yet. You're an elementary or a middle schooler or a high schooler, so, so marriage isn't even a possibility for you yet. There are some people who are single, and they have been scarred by separation and divorce. And there are some people who, because of that experience, do not ever want to get married again. And there are some people who want to have that opportunity for a marriage experience down the road. And then there are people who have been, uh, who have gone through that sad, grieving experience of losing a loved one to death. And so they are single in that regard. And again, folks in that particular category may be happy where they are, or because they had a good marriage, they would welcome and be open to a marriage down the road. So I just want to acknowledge that 
uh, people listening and worshiping with us by way of Cable Channel 7, live streaming our service, or those of you who are here today, there are tons of people who are going to hear me preach on marriage today, and you're not married. Okay, so I just want to acknowledge that. I want to honor that. And yet at the same time, to say that anytime we can encourage marriage, anytime we can celebrate marriage, anytime we can build it up, then we do a number of things. Number one, we strengthen the marriage itself, the marriage bond. Number two, we strengthen families. Number three, we strengthen the life of our church. And number four, we strengthen our communities and our states and our nations and our world. So I think that there's a good word that Proverbs gives us about marriage, and we want to spend some time looking at it this morning. So we'll come to the scripture in just a moment. Let me start with a story. A pastor was speaking to a group of fourth graders one Sunday morning. And he wanted to talk to them about marriage. And so he said to them, what does the Bible have to say about marriage? And one little fourth grade little boy quickly raised his hand and he blurted out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, I thought those were words that Jesus spoke from the cross, uh, offering forgiveness for those who had put him there. But indeed, there's a lot of truth in that because marriage is a difficult prospect and a difficult thing to do on a daily basis. My guess is that the two most important things that we may well do in our life, potentially, is to number one, be a husband or a wife, and number two, to be a parent. And of those two things, you and I have the least amount of training and preparation to do it. You've got far more training in your professional work to do what you do in that regard than you do when you say I do to a husband or a wife or when you become a parent. I don't know how it was with you, but when I got married and when I became a parent, they didn't give me a manual. Did you get a manual? I, I didn't get one of those manuals. And so I had to learn, Ricky, you just became a parent this week. Did you get a manual? I've, I visited, you got, you got a small one. Small one. I, I visited Ricky and Joni in the hospital. They had a, had a little boy on Tuesday. I presume he's doing well. But, but I'm sorry, I didn't see that manual laying around in the hospital room this past week. So it, it's a hard thing to be a parent and to be a husband or a wife. And so on so many occasions, we really do have to say, Father, forgive us, for we know not what we do. We, we just don't have any experience in that regard. I officiated a wedding a couple weeks ago. And uh, in that wedding, I talked to the couple, did a little homily, a little meditation, a little sermonette, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And I talked to them about some things that I think are important to really mean it when you tie the knot. Now notice I didn't say tie the noose. I said tie the knot. What, what does it mean to really tie the knot? And I told them several things. And after I shared that with them, I thought, you know, I'm going to be preaching on marriage in a couple of weeks out of Proverbs. And I really want to dig a little deeper and expand that. So, so this is what this morning is all about. I'm expanding a little bit, quite a bit more, on what I shared with a couple several weeks ago. But the first thing I told them is that when you really mean it when you tie the knot, it means that you go beyond the place and the process of where the marriage takes place, where the wedding takes place. A lot of couples get tied up 
in the process of the engagement. They get tied up in the process of the location, the place where they're going. And if you really mean it when you tie the knot, you got to go a little bit beyond the place and the process. Now, now let's talk a minute about what is a wedding. A, a wedding is that event that takes, a, I think, a minimum of four to six months to plan. And it takes 15 to 30 minutes to implement. Think, think about that. You spend a, I mean, some couples can pull it off in two or three months of planning. Some take a whole year. But you spend all of that time and energy for 15 to 30 minutes depending on the elements of the worship itself. A wedding is an event that takes four to six months to plan at a minimum, that takes 15 to 30 minutes to implement, that costs on average in our country today, depending on the state in which you live, somewhere between thirty dollars and $45,000. Now you can spend a lot less, you can spend a lot more. And it pulls together family and friends at a time in which those family and friends will probably never, ever be in the same place together again for the rest of their life. And that's why weddings are so, so special. They pull together family and friends at a place that all those folks will never be together probably ever for the rest of their life. And it takes place at a location that more and more increasingly is occurring at destinations other than a house of worship. Wedding destinations, destination weddings, I should say, are becoming very popular now. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that we're seeing less and less in our churches, in our synagogues, in other places of worship. You're not seeing as many weddings as you used to. So, so that's what a wedding is. And from a Christian perspective, a wedding is a worship service. And we also have to understand that a wedding does not equal a marriage. Just like there are a lot of people who get graduation diplomas and they never learned anything. Ricky, you also teach at East Carolina. You ever seen that happen before? I'm picking on Ricky this morning. Ricky, you shouldn't have showed up today. You should have stayed at home. I wouldn't be picking on you. You ever seen people who have been baptized? And you wonder, you're not trying to judge, but you wonder, are you really a Christian? So just because you have a wedding doesn't mean you have a marriage. You see the difference? A wedding does not equal a marriage. So, so you know, our society is kind of caught up. We're caught up in these um, experiences of a beautiful wedding. We're caught up in the perfect honeymoon and we're caught up in all the trappings that surround this event that we call a wedding that we hope produces a marriage. And I tell couples that I hope they're able to pull off both, a beautiful wedding and a beautiful marriage, but if I have to choose between the two, I hope and pray they have the ugliest wedding that Pitt County has ever seen <laughs> or any other destination that they're going to, but I hope and pray that 50 years later it is said of their marriage that they had a beautiful one. If I have to make a choice, I'll pick the beautiful marriage over the beautiful wedding anytime. So, when you really mean it, when you tie the knot, you got to look, I think, beyond 
the process of the engagement, the process of planning the wedding, and the event itself, the location, the place of where it takes place. Not that that's not important, and not that you can't go to a special place, but if that becomes the sole focus, we may have some trouble in the marriage. So, we got to go beyond the place and the process. And I told that couple that day that beyond the place and the process, that if they really meant it when they tied the knot, that I wanted them to remember the promises. The promises that they were making to each other. I don't know if you've listened to a wedding, worship service, ceremony lately, but there are a ton of promises that a couple makes to each other. If I had realized all the promises I was making, oh my gracious, I'm sure Leslie feels the same way. You know, you don't really realize the extent of the promises that you're making. When, when I do a, a wedding ceremony, I try to remind them that we're making vertical promises to God to involve Him in the, in the marriage, and we're making horizontal promises to each other as husband and wife. I ask the couple, after we've read Scripture, having heard how God has created ordered and blessed the covenant of marriage. It's not the contract of marriage. It's the covenant of marriage. Do you affirm your desire and intention to enter this covenant with your husband or your wife-to-be? And hopefully they're going to say yes. And then I ask them, in your baptism, you have been called to union with Christ in the church. Do you intend to honor this honor this calling through the covenant of marriage. Promises that you're making. And then the wedding vows. I and your full name take you and your full name to be my wedded husband or wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband or wife. And here are the conditions in which you're going to do that. In plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health. And sometimes I even throw in, in dishes, in dishes diapers, and detergent. No, I don't really do that. I just do that at the rehearsal to loosen them up a little bit. And then how long are you going to do this? How long are you going to be faithful and love each other and be committed to each other in this covenant of marriage? The last phrase, for as long as we both shall live. Promises. Promises. And then I turn to the husband and wife and I say, what do you bring now as a sign of your promise to your husband or your wife? And they'll say a ring. And then I invite them, after I say a few words about the symbol of, uh, symbolism of the ring, to slip it on the third finger of their left hand and repeat after me, this ring I give you in token and in pledge as a sign of our constant faith or faithfulness and abiding love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Promises. So you see, these couples are making promises to each other. Then they go on the honeymoon, and then a few days or a few weeks or a few months or even a year or so goes by, and the honeymoon suddenly is over. Is that ringing a bell with anybody in here? 
The honeymoon is over, and suddenly I'm discovering there's some unlovable things about him. I'm discovering there's some unlovable things about her. And yet I've made these promises to be faithful and to be committed and to love. And we forget that love is not just a feeling. Love is a choice. Love is a choice. It's a decision that I make to love you when you are not so lovable. It's a choice that we make. So what happens is that as time goes on, there are some couples who move to a place in their relationship where they've both been so unlovable for so long that one or the other seeks satisfaction outside of the marriage relationship. And that's what we call adultery. And the Bible also has a word, fornication, which is the Greek word, porneia. Now, let's go now to chapter 5 of Proverbs. Because the writer of Proverbs has written this textbook, and he's got these young men in his classroom. This is the textbook. And he... Either maybe some of them are in marriage or some of them might be preparing for marriage or looking for marriage down the road. And look what the writer says, chapter 5, verse 3. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no fault to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Now then, my sons, see these are these boys, these young men in the classroom. Now then, my sons, <clears throat> listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house lest you give your best strength to others and your years to the one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toll enrich another man's house. Hey, somebody might sue you if you go after another man's wife. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline. How my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teacher's or listen to my instructors, I come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. See, see the wise sage teachers warning these young men to remember your promises and to be faithful to your wife. Don't, don't go out on her. Now, now that, that we'll go back to that Greek word pernia for a minute. The, the Greek word pernia is is sexual intimacy without, outside the boundaries of marriage. It's where we get our English word pornography. It can refer to a prostitute or a harlot in Scripture. It can mean to live a sexually unrestrained life. Pernia is a dangerous use of God's good gift of sexuality. And it can refer to any sexual relationship outside of marriage. Pornography, as I mentioned, whether it's TV, internet, print, or phone version. 
It can refer to sexual addictions, multiple sexual partners, sex for sale or hire through human trafficking, sexual abuse of any kind. And I think that category could also include emotional attachments with someone who is other than your spouse. So the writer of Proverbs understands that it's important to remember your promises. And when you forget your promises, it leads you down a dangerous path. But, but, but let me tell you something else that I've noticed as a pastor. Husbands and wives can have affairs with other things or people and it not be a sexual affair. I've seen a lot of husbands and wives through the years having an affair with their career. Their job is more important than their spouse. I've seen some people having an affair with their children. Their loyalty and their time and their energy is given more to the children or maybe aging parents or brothers and sisters than it's given to the spouse. I've seen people have an affair with their church. They spend more time serving in the life of the church or in the community, in some other volunteer engagement than they do to their spouse. I've seen people have an affair with their recreational and leisure time hobbies and activities. They give more time to that endeavor than they give loyalty and commitment and love to their spouse. You can forget your promises to your spouse in a lot of different ways, but the writer of Proverbs is basically saying when you stray away from those promises, look out for trouble. Look out for trouble. So I told that couple that day, you got to go beyond place, you got to go beyond the process, you got to remember your promises. And finally, you've got to remember the person to whom you have made the promise. You know, it's really easy to forget that we have made a promise to a person. It's the husband, it's the wife, and we want to do everything we can to make that relationship flourish. All right, go with me now to chapter 5 of Proverbs, and let's pick up in verse 15. The writer's talking to these young men. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. You didn't know this was going to get R-rated, did you? May you ever be captivated by her love. That word could also be uh, translated intoxicated. May you be intoxicated by her love. Why be captivated or intoxicated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? 
the, the, the word from Proverbs is that we do everything to be intoxicated and captivated and enraptured by each other from, from the first moment of marriage all the way through. We do everything that we can to help nurture that relationship. Uh, there's a guy by the name of William F. Harley Jr. Some of you have heard me mention his book that was written 20, 25 years ago. He's a therapist, and the name of his book is His Needs, Her Needs. His Needs, Her Needs. I, I ask all of the couples that I do premarital counseling with to read the book. And um, when I first saw the book, teasingly years ago, I I asked Leslie to read it, and she thought it was great. She said, you know, you ought to invite these couples to read it. And I, I told Leslie the name of the book was Her Needs, Her Needs. <laughs> but, 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 it, but it really is His Needs, Her Needs. I was being a little facetious. But William Harley, I, and I think he, he does a great job, he correctly, I think, identifies five basic needs that men have and five basic needs that women have. And guess what? They're different. They're different needs. They're not the same. And, and he says in the book, you need to go out and get a copy. His needs, her needs. He says in the book that all of us have a love bank. And the deal in marriage, and really any relationship, but especially in marriage, is that you want to make more deposits in your spouse's love bank than you make withdrawals. Now, I don't know how it is with your regular banking account, but I love making deposits in my bank account. I don't like to make withdrawals, do you? So, in relationships, we want to do everything we can to make deposits. And William Harley says that the anatomy of an affair is not so much that it's a sexual violation, although it is, but the real deal in an affair is that a husband has made more withdrawals than deposits in the wife's love bank, or the wife has made more withdrawals than deposits in the love bank, and so that other partner goes out to find someone who will make the appropriate deposits in the love bank to meet my need. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So you see, the deal for us is that we need to do everything we can to, to nurture the marriage and to make the most deposits that we can in the marriage. You know, there's an old saying, and it goes like this. Marriages may be made in heaven, but the work is done here on earth. And there are only two people who can do the work of my marriage. It's Leslie and me. By the way, tomorrow, it'll be 41 years that we've, that we've nurtured that marriage. Thank you. And so, we're the only ones that can work on our marriage. You, you can't do it for us. We've got to do the work ourselves. And it's the same way in your marriage. You, you've got to do the work. You've got to do the nurturing of it on a regular basis. If you don't do the work, folks, th there's going to be some pain down the road. And potentially, pornea will destroy you. Go over to chapter 6 with me for a minute. Go to chapter 6. Look beginning in verse chapter. Verse 25 of Proverbs 6. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, speaking of someone other than your spouse, or let her captivate you or intoxicate you with her eyes. 
For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread, and the adulteress preys upon your very life. Now here comes a couple of rhetorical questions. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Obviously, no. Verse 28, can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Obviously, answers no. Verse 29, so is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Look in verse 32. But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. You know, yesterday morning, the authorities at the prison where Jeffrey Epstein was being held, the multi-million dollar financier who allegedly had engaged, and there's more and more and more and more and more women coming out reporting abuse and rape, pornea that was taking place in his life. And it seems that he committed suicide. His life got destroyed by pernea. And the words of Scripture is very true. Verse 32, a man who commits adultery or any other indiscretion along that line lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. The writer of Proverbs knows what he's talking about. And even if we think, well, you know, I can do some of this stuff and nobody will ever know. It'll just be between my wife and me or my husband and me or I'll just know these things. You know, we need to remember that God knows. Go back to chapter 5, verse 21. The writer says in chapter 25, verse 21, for a man's ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all of his paths. He examines all of his paths. God is going to hold us accountable for whether we're doing the work of nurturing our spiritual life with him, of whether we're doing the work of nurturing our marriage life, of whether we're doing the work of nurturing our family life, of whether we're doing the work of nurturing our congregational life together. Everything we do is in full view of the Lord, according to the writer of Proverbs, and I think he's right on. And God examines all of our paths. You know, years ago, uh, I saw a family circus comic strip in the newspaper. I mean, it's probably been 25, 30 years ago. And I clipped it out and I saved it. And I think it speaks such great truth. It has uh, the mom and the dad in the family circus uh, comic strip and the mom and dad are embracing each other, the husband and wife. They're embracing each other. And you can't tell which one is speaking which words. But one of the spouses, either the husband or the wife, the mom or the dad, say, when the children are grown and leave home, we too will be all we have left. And the other spouse replies, we too 
were all we had to start with. We too were all we had to start with. So I want to say to you this morning that if you really want to mean it when you tie the knot and you want longevity in that marriage relationship, I want to invite you, first of all, to keep your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus, number one. And number two, keep your eyes on your spouse. Don't keep your eyes on your job. Do not keep your eyes on your children. Do not keep your eyes on your extended family. Do not keep your eyes on your church or your community or your civic responsibilities. Do not keep your eyes on any other person or thing or obligation. You keep your eyes on Jesus. You keep your eyes on your spouse. And I think the odds are that when it's all said and done, you'll really mean it as you age and after you tie the knot, that knot will be strong throughout the years to come. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning and we've read about love today and we've sung about love and Lord, we know we live in a world that seems to be fractured by hate and discord and dissension and violence. And Lord, once again, we pray for the communities in El Paso, Texas, the community in Ohio that's, that has just last weekend were victims of violence and death, people still trying to recover both physically and emotionally. So Lord, we know we live in a fallen, broken, fragile, and sinful world. And Lord, sometimes that brokenness can enter into the relationships that we hold precious. It could be a broken, fragile, less than perfect relationship between a mom and a dad. It could be between the husband and the wife. It could be between parents and children. It could be between brothers and sisters. It could be between brothers and sisters in Christ and the life of the church. And Lord, help us to remember the promises that we have made to you to serve each other, the promises we've made in our marriages and help us not to forget the people, the ones to whom we've made those promises. So Lord, we need an extra healthy dose of your love and your grace. And we do need to say so often, Father, forgive us. Because we don't always know what we're doing when it comes to marriage and parenting and living in family life and, and even living together in the life of the church. So Father, Forgive us in those moments when we have been less than who you have created us to be. So Lord, hear our prayer and bless all marriages and all families, however they are constituted, Lord. Bless all marriages and families this day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.